Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the novelist and games writer James Swallow. James, welcome to the show. Hello, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. Ah, you're very welcome. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. I always describe myself as a writer of stuff um, because I, I, I write lots of different stuff. Generally, um, right now I'm, I'm writing in the, the thriller sphere with uh, my Mark Dane series of action thrillers for, for Bonnier Books. But previously, I've written for lots of uh, famous tie-in franchises. So Star Trek, Doctor Who, Warhammer 40,000, Halo, whole load of them. Um, which is always great fun to do to, to kind of tell stories in other people's universes. And I also do a lot of work in uh, the video game sphere as well, writing on um, large scale games such as uh, The Division, uh, Ghost Recon Wildlands, No Man's Sky, the Deus Ex series. Uh, and beyond that, I've done a little bit of work in audio drama. Uh, I've written short fiction. I've uh, done a little bit of work writing for television way back at the beginning of my career. Um, I'm pretty much somebody who bounces around all different kinds of writing because I just enjoy using all the different tools in my toolbox. Uh, you know, I, I love the, the different challenge that you get from, from writing in different styles. I think it's a great way to keep you fresh as an author. You're my kind of writer. Um, I didn't know you'd worked on The Division. I worked on that. Has everybody worked on The Division? <laughs> it's such a massive game, isn't it? It's so huge. It's why I actually worked on the Division Two, the, the the sequel. Oh uh, right, right. But yeah, but, yeah, but it's uh, it's it's such a massive game because it's got so much material. It's it's part of that that idea of the new the newest thing of the games as service, right? It's, it's not where you, you you play a game, you get to the end, and you go, well, that's done. You know, that was fun. Now it's uh, it's an ongoing thing with seasons like TV shows, and there's new content being generated and new material, and these games last for years and years, uh, and that's really fun to be part of that. It's a very new way to to tell story. I really like it. It is, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, just to quickly detail, elaborate on this, because um, I think most, most, you know, most listeners, most people, frankly, don't write video games. It's still a very small field. It's expanding all the time, but it is a small field in terms of the writers, as you and I know. Um, but I think a lot of people have an idea that if there are multiple writers on a game, that we're all in the same room, like a TV writer's room or something. Uh and I don't know about you, but my experience is that is rarely the case. Most of the time when there are multiple writers, you might have a few days together to hammer something out. But for the vast majority of the time, you know, we're all working in our own places at our own speed. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had both of those experiences. Uh, when I worked on the, the Deus Ex game, which was uh, a very big title, sort of 70 hours of narrative there, we did have uh, a kind of writer's room, writer's bullpen. And we had a team, you know, we had our own section of the studio and we were all in the office every day and we were all working together and breaking story. And it did feel similar to what you might expect to somebody working on a television show because we were essentially delivering, you know, a season's worth of TV, mm. if you could think of it in the same sort of context, it's the same amount of writing. But then a lot of the other stuff I've done as a, as a freelancer or as an external writer is exactly like the other way you said, you know, you come in and you talk to a couple of people on the project and you go off to your corner and you do your stuff and shoot it over to wherever the studio is and you work in in kind of relative isolation yeah i i did uh, the best example of that for me was i did uh, a few months work on shadow of mordor the middle earth action game and uh i knew i was only doing one piece of it i did the bit where um i don't know if you've played that but there's a, whenever you face off against an orc they insult you right uh, and i wrote all, i wrote all those insults like thousands and thousands <laughs> Of those insults oh that's uh, great it drove me mad by the end of it um but the game came out and i looked at the credits and there were at least three other writers on the team who i knew and none of us had known we were all then mailed one another going like, i didn't know you worked on that <laughs> yeah i mean was we the thing is, is these projects can often take like three or four years to, yeah. to come to fruition and it may be people who were working on it six months ago but they aren't on it now you know so it's not like you're simultaneously working on something no, that's absolutely true. Yeah, because they are—they do have such massive scope, and it's that that example that you said about you know just writing the insults is uh, that's the sort of thing that you wouldn't think there'd be a job for that. It'd be you know surely that'd be a job for the writing team, but no, because these projects are so huge. Sometimes the material has to be parcelled out like that. So you have maybe 
a supervising writer, a, a narrative director, often they call them, who's in charge of kind of holding the main core storyline in their head. They're, they're doing the job that maybe like a showrunner would do on a TV series. But then you've got somebody, somebody who's writing just a dialogue for this particular quest stream in a story and somebody else who's writing all of the incidental dialogue from the non-player characters. So like the guy, maybe you go into the shop and you go, I'd like to buy a sword, please. And he says, certainly, sir. And someone's got to write his dialogue, right? You know, and someone has to write the, the dialogue of the, the overheard conversations or the radio transmissions or your, that you're hearing. You know, there was a guy who, when we were working on Deus Ex, we had uh, one of the functions you could do in the game is you could hack into people's computers and you could read their emails. And, and the way it worked in the game was usually if you were trying to find your way into a secret area, you'd hack a computer and go through the emails and the code you wanted would be hidden in there somewhere. But it couldn't just be that one email on the computer because that didn't look realistic. So they had to be like five or six emails <laughs> on everybody's computer just to make it feel like it was real. So someone had to write those five or six other emails, and some of them would be germane to the kind of narrative of the world, and some of them would be kind of giving you sort of background details, and, and others would just be, um, you know, Nigerian princes offering to give you millions of dollars. But someone had to write that, and we had a guy whose job was solely to do nothing but the emails, thousands and thousands of these <laughs> fake emails. And I, I think, yeah, by the end of it, he was going kind of a little crazy with, with it. But, uh, but even there, there was, he was still finding places to kind of drop little nuggets of story and find an opportunity to be creative, even in something as, as niche as that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you often find with, uh, when people get those sorts of assignments, because I've done similar sort of things myself, uh, you'll slip in your own little stories that have nothing to do with the main characters or main plot but that observant players can find if they read enough of them, you know? So I, yeah. I, I feel confident in guessing that there was probably at least one sort of office style romance story going on in, the, in those emails. There absolutely was. There was a, there was a story where you had to, you had, you had to break into a laboratory at nighttime. So there, there's nobody in there. It's just this, just the patrol robots going around. And I think you hack the first computer and you find an email and it's from someone saying, uh, I think they found out about us having an affair. I don't know what to do. I can't, if my husband finds out, I don't know what to do. And then you go into the next section and you find another computer and it's the, com and it's the computer of the person, the other person in the affair. And they yeah. say, well, I don't care. I love you. Let's run away together. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't care if Bob from accounting has seen us kissing in the closet. Uh, you know, I love you. Let's run away. And then finally you find Bob from accounting's computer and, and the message he sent to the bosses. I think they're stealing staplers. Uh, someone should have a word with HR, you know, <laughs> and there's this great little story about these three characters who don't actually exist in the game as people you can meet. Yeah. But, but it gives you that great sense of a world going on. That's not just you, the player, that there's a larger world going on with people having their own little dramas all around it. And I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's uh, that sort of world building is, I mean, that's a big part of, of games writing, but obviously a big part of all kinds of writing, especially if you're writing a series or something that takes place in, you know, a wider world. So I'm, I want to come back to that, uh, when we get onto your Mark Dane stuff, but before we do, how did you get started? Cause you like me, you know, you've, you've been around the block. We've both been doing this a fair amount of time. Um, you said you started early on, you did TV. Is that how you sort of broke into writing? Well, I mean, if we could dial the clock right back to the beginning, the, my original sort of, before I even was getting paid money, I used to write for, for entertainment sort of magazines and fanzines. So I was writing uh, reviews and I was writing about like kind of movies and films and television. I was doing it for fun. Mm -hmm. And from that, I, I kind of got my stuff in front of editors at actual magazines and i started getting paid for writing film reviews and book reviews and writing about movies and tv and cartoons and comic books and games and what have you so that was kind of the first time people actually paid me money for writing stuff down and i did that for a while and i, and I really enjoyed it but i kind of came to a, a feeling sort of after a few years of doing it that the thing about journalism is it's kind of is inherently disposable and however much you do, you know, you put your material out there and a month later people have forgotten about it and they're reading the next thing. And it doesn't have the, the degree of permanence that a book does. So I always, in the back of my head, I wanted to be a, a prose writer. And at the same time, I'd been trying to find, you know, find the right niche for myself. So I, I kind of diverged off into trying to do script writing and I went out to the US uh, and I pitched for some of the Star Trek TV shows and I sold two story pitches um, to 
what was Star Trek Voyager, which was the current show at the time. And I thought that was where my career was going to go, but I just really couldn't make a go out of it because I couldn't transfer myself out to the United States and live out there for, you know, and just devote, devote my entire career to that. So in the end, I came home and I thought, well, I'm going to concentrate on, on becoming a prose writer. And then there was this kind of night of the long knives where like, I think like five different magazines I was working for closed down in the space of like two months. So I was going to jump and I got pushed. And so then I had no choice but to find another revenue stream. And that was me going into writing prose. And the first prose thing I did was I wrote a series of, of young adult adventure novels for Scholastic. And that got me a book credit. And then off of that, uh, I had something that I could take to, to other publishers and say, well, I've written this sort of thing. So I have, I have profile now, you know, would you like to hire me for your project? Yeah. Um, I, uh, spoke not so long ago actually to Paul Cornell, uh, on this show. And we were talking about the sort of how, when you're at that stage, all of your effort is focused on getting that first credit, that first publication, that first something that you can then take to other people and say, Hey, I can do this. Other people have published me. They may not have paid me very much, but you know, <laughs> they have nevertheless published me. Uh, I, I'm for real. Um, that's really important in then sort of progressing with the rest of your career. Yeah, because you you might be able to get kind of maybe one sale. You can get lucky, right? Maybe, but you, what you want is if you want to be a professional writer, if you're somebody who's saying this is the career I want to spend the rest of my life doing, you need to have that legitimacy to be able to walk into a room and say, I have been paid money for this. People think my work is of a good enough quality that they're willing to give me cold, hard cash for it. And if you can't get through that door, you, you it's very hard to get taken seriously by, by people in the professional business. Yeah. Well, understandably, because you're asking them to also, you know, commit money to you, to invest money in you, essentially. You're a kind of unproven quality until you're proven. Yes, exactly that. Um, so how did you wind up in games then? Well, I was always a gamer. Um, I've always loved games, board games, video games, the whole thing. You know, I've always been sort of playing games for a long time. And one of the things I'd seen a lot is as, as games technology was evolving, I've kind of grown up with the video games industry as a kid, a child of the 80s. You know, mm. So I've seen the technology changing and evolving as I've got older. And what I've noticed was that the stories just, they weren't that great. And early on, you didn't really need to have a great story in a video game. But as the technology evolved to a point where people started to expect something a little bit more than just really great graphics and exciting gameplay, the story was really letting it down. And in the back of my head was this idea is I thought, I went, how can I get into there? How can I take my love of games and, and my skill as a writer and kind of bring these two things together? And it was like so many things in this industry. It was just one of those kind of right place, right time situations. So I was working as an entertainment journalist writing for uh, the official Star Trek magazine, and they had me covering uh, a studio that was building uh, new Star Trek video games. And they had a title that they would, they had a very early build of it, and they were showing it to me. And they said, oh, you know, we've got this, this game that we're building. And it turned out that they'd used an article I wrote as a resource for the backstory for this this game. And I said, oh, I wrote that. And they're like, well, we should probably hire you then. <laughs> so so they kind of brought me on, like right at the last minute, as most of the work had already been done on this project. And they asked me to kind of put my kind of Star Trek eye on it and say, yeah, make sure it feels properly Star Trek. And that was my first opportunity to actually kind of get into the weeds and get my hands dirty writing in games. And again, once I had that credit, I was in a position to say, well, I am now a games writer. and um, and from that point onwards, that was in 1999 when I worked on that project. That was called Star Trek Invasion for the PlayStation 1. And pretty much every year after that, I've worked on at least one uh, large-scale games project since that point. Yeah, I found exactly the same. My, I came to it quite a bit later than you. My first game was Dead Space, which I worked on in 2006, 2007, and then it came out in 2008. But once it had been published, once it was out there, yeah, every year from then onwards i've worked on at least one video game some of them are, i don't always work on as big a projects as you i uh i often seek out sort of you know smaller games sometimes uh because of time commitments but yeah once you again once you get into the sphere the work if you want it becomes a regular thing but i also love that story i, I always tell people i fell into games writing backwards 
And it sounds like you kind of did as well. I mean, not that you didn't want to do it because I wanted to do it as well, but it is a difficult industry to get into. Definitely. Unless you're already within the sphere of people who, uh, who make games. I mean, I think that's changed a bit now. Um, but certainly, you know, in the, in the early aughts, there was no kind of on-ramp. If you wanted to write, if you were a writer and you wanted to work in video games, that job barely existed. And frankly, games writing didn't have much respect. People think people were like, you know, well, why do we need a good story? And, and but as the technology evolved, as people's expectations evolved, I think game studios and producers understood that. Oh, you know, if we have a good narrative, if we have a good story, that will make our great game superlative. You know, that will add an extra level of sell for us. And in the in more recent years, I think games writing has become a bit more respected. People understand that it is something that is valuable to players and it is valuable to the product to make it just better. So games writers are getting a little bit more respect now. And now there is an on-ramp, you know, now I'm, I'm meeting people when I, when I go to uh, games writing events, I'm meeting students and, and young guys and girls who are coming up who are kind of like thorough, but pure blood game writers. You know, they haven't come, <laughs> they're not like me who's brought a skill set from somewhere else. Or I know, I know games writers, um, uh, Rihanna Pratchett's a great example. Rhi was a, um, a writer working for PC Zone. So she was a games journalist yep. and she parlayed that into writing for, for video games. And now she's like one of the leading games writers in the world. She took a skill set from one place and she employed it in a different way. But now we're seeing people who are taking college courses. They're learning creative writing. They're learning programming skills. They're learning uh, how to employ narrative in a game. And those people are purely games writers from the ground up. And I think that's really fascinating to see that sort of level of skill set um, coming into the industry. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what that generation of writers produces. Although I, that, I should temper that. That sounds like I'm being disparaging, and I'm absolutely not, because I think one of the, because you're right, games writing is absolutely not respected. And there was this idea of like, well, you know, why should we focus our attention on story? But the reason for that, I think, and this is interesting from a craft point of view, I think the reason for that was because uh, in the early days of games, when people started thinking, oh, maybe we should, uh, you know, sort of do something that's that's got a strong story to it. What did they do? They went to big name writers from other media uh, with no experience, sometimes in even playing games, certainly no experience in writing games and expected them to come up with something brilliant that worked as a game. And of course, you know, people like Stephen King and Steven Spielberg, I know, were approached to write video games. Like, they're great people, but they don't know anything about games. And so mm -hmm. what you had was failed experiments. And unfortunately, that led into a received wisdom for some years. Certainly, I run into this a lot of people saying, well, why should we bother? We've tried making games that have great stories. We've hired these big name writers and nobody cared and the games flopped. So why should we make the effort when, of course, what they actually needed was people who understood how games worked and how the story in games works uh, in order to write a good, specific games story. Yeah, I had exactly that experience. I've, I've, I lived through that kind of those dark years as well with the same thing where I think what it was is people who worked on games understood the idea of let's have a great story. And, and like you said, they, they got the wrong tool for the job. They got people who were like really great screenwriters or comic book writers or, or wherever TV writers. There were very few of them who could translate that skill set across because you need to know games. It's just the same as, you know, knowing film and, and writing for film. It's often I've, t I've taught writers workshops and I've had people come in who have seen games as a, as a opportunity to make some money and, and they want to transfer their skill set across. And the thing I always say to them is like, what games have you played? And not so much now, but certainly in the early days, plenty of them were like, oh, God, I don't play games. <laughs> you know, I, I, I remember very distinctly there was a, there was a lady I spoke to, uh, and she said, oh, I've written for, for radio, and she had very extensive radio credits. And I said, that's great. This, this is a really good transferable skill set because radio writing, a lot of game narrative is delivered over kind of radio-style transmissions. So you've got a great transferable skill because if you can understand how to do a radio narrative, you can probably do a games narrative. And I was very encouraging. And then I said to her, so, you know, what games have you played? And she's like, oh God, I don't play games. I've never played games. And I said, well, you must have some idea. And she said, well, I've been in the room when my son was playing Halo. And that was, the, and that was it. 
that was that was all she knew about video games. And I said, you wow. you have to go away. And, you know, you wouldn't walk into Steven Spielberg's office and go, Steve, buddy, never seen a film in my entire life, but here's my movie script. Can you go away and make it, right? It's the, the same kind of level of uh, thing. He's just, I had that conversation a lot of times with people saying to me, I don't know anything about writing games, but you do. Can you tell me what like the shortcut is? And I'm like, yeah, go away and play games yeah. for five years. I can tell you that there are no shortcuts. There right? are no shortcuts, right? You know, yeah, don't, don't disrespect the medium by thinking it's just something easy you can phone in because there's just as much effort and energy being put into games writing as there is into every other kind. You know, you, you have to know the material. You don't have to be a programmer. You don't have to, you don't have to know how to make a game. It, it does help to have a bit of insight into that. But what you do have to understand is how games tell story. Because if you don't have the shape of that in your head, how can you expect to bring your skill set to that kind of industry? Yeah, exactly. I always felt that I had uh, a bit of a leg up on some of my peers because I spent, as it sounds like you probably did as well, I spent my youth uh, playing role-playing games and reading game books, you know, fighting fantasy game books and that sort of thing. So the idea of branching narratives and designing scenarios for players to play through was not unusual to me at all. Yeah, you under you understand the kind of the ludic structure, right? To be fancy about it, to, of these sort of things, you know, you can you you know you can understand the way that branching narratives, well, branching narratives are, are, are key to a lot of, of, of games design. And, I mean, there are plenty of games that don't have branching narratives that are, that are still quite linear, but you need to understand the way that game, g- game structure passes out action and narrative. It's not the same way you get it in a film or a, or a book. You know? And the most unique thing of all, and this is the thing that I really love about writing games, is the one thing that it can do that no other medium can, is when you read a book or you watch a movie or you go to the theater or whatever, you know, you're always a passenger in the story. No matter how closely you identify with the lead character, you're always going to be a passenger in their narrative. The narrative is always delivered to you through somebody else's experiences. But when you're in a game, you do not get the narrative handed to you. You discover it. You know, it's like unearthing a, unearthing a sort of dinosaur bones, right? You dig it up. And I think that makes you take ownership of that narrative in a way that is much more intimate than in any other kind of form of storytelling. And you have, as a writer, immediately you have this direct connection straight to your audience because you're, you're, they are the hero. They are the prime mover in this story. And you can connect with them in such a strong way. And I think that's really exciting to tell stories in that fashion. Yeah. I mean, the, the original Finding Fancy books all started with "You are the hero." Exactly, that was yeah. their tagline, and they were books. There was no graphics, no sound, none of that. You know, it was just books. But because you, it was speaking to you, and you were making the choices and what have you, it did. Certainly, as a kid, when I was reading them, it absolutely gripped me and drew me in. And I still, you know, some created some incredibly memorable experiences that I can still remember now. I can't remember details of quite a lot of things, you know, novels and movies and what have you and plays that I experienced when I was a child. But I do remember a lot of those books because, as you say, you're immersed in it. It's that, it's that connection. It's that, it's the, you know, this happened to me, even if it's a simulation, even if it's, yeah. you know, removed via, you know, you've got a controller in your hand and, and you've got that sort of distance. You still feel like, you know, the, if it's a compelling story, you feel like it's happening to you. And and that I think just connects with your your viewership, readership, gamership, whatever you want to call them, in a, in a really unique way. Well, let's move on then to the novel work that you do, because as you say, you know, people like us who work in games, we understand the difference between the two. But as you say, we also understand that there is nothing quite so immersive as experiencing something yourself and playing a game rather than having a story told to you. So, what do you? Do you approach your novel work with that in mind? Do you try and, you know, sort of get around that somehow? I think, you know, if we're talking here about like, you know, how, do the, how does your sort of skill set transfer from one to another? One of, one of the reasons I like doing different kinds of writing is I think that if you imagine your writerly toolbox, you know, you've got your spanner and your socket wrench and your hammer and what have you, and each tool is 
it's it's all writing at the end of the day, right? But yeah, you've got yeah. your different ways of approaching it. So the way you tell a short story is not going to be the same model that you'd use for writing a movie script or a video game or a stage play or a comic book. You know, they're all going to be framed differently, even though the story content might be similar. The way you structure them is different. And I think having worked in those different mediums allows you to kind of sharpen that particular tool. So when you go back to another medium, so let's say, for example, me going from writing a video game to writing an action thriller, I'm going to take what I've learned as a games writer and I'm going to fold that back into my novel writing and vice versa. You know, whatever skills are transferable, I think, make you a better writer. It strengthens strengthens your ability. So the one thing I learned from from games writing is you need to have uh, a, a sense of propulsiveness to your narrative. You know, you need to keep the audience interested because you want them to play the story through to the very end. So you need to have pace and you need to have dynamism and you need to have a sense of velocity to your story. And that is a skill set that transfers very well to writing a fast-paced action thriller. So very much that sort of structural matrix of building a video game is something that I applied to the way that I plot out my novels. Do you know, that's funny because I... I agree completely. And now that I think about it, I don't, maybe I hadn't quite consciously realized it, but I have that same thing of, yeah, I want something to always, there's nothing worse in a game than wandering around, not knowing what you're supposed to be doing. Exactly. Yeah. When you're playing a game, I mean. And so, yeah, I always try to avoid that feeling in my novels as well, in my prose work and in my comics as, as well. This idea of, you know, you always know why people are doing what they're doing and what they're, aiming for now obviously you can have narrative misdirection and they may be mistaken and all that sort of stuff but still in the moment it's clear what somebody is trying to do or what they're hoping to achieve um and yeah maybe that is something that i've brought from games i hadn't thought about it like that i mean i'm, I'm talking specifically of this is kind of genre specific because we're talking about like action adventure stories you know something that does rely on kind of keeping things ticking over and, and moving along oh sure but that's mostly what i write anyway yeah Obviously, you know, there, there are plenty of books and games that aren't about sort of kicking down doors and blowing stuff up, right? There are plenty of stories that are small, um, quiet, gentle narratives as well. But again, you know, you, if you worked on a game that had that kind of narrative, there's no reason why you couldn't take the lessons you learned there about pacing and character and then cross that over into a completely different medium. Well, and even, I mean, let's take one of the best examples of that in recent years, something like Gone Home. Yeah. Even that has that sense of forward momentum. You know, the way the game is structured and designed and the way you move through the space, you are always finding new things that weren't there before and, you know, moving forward in the story. Yeah, it's I think it's any kind of narrative is essentially about a journey that you take those characters on and it's about propelling them forward. Whether that is jumping out of an aeroplane that's on fire while carrying a machine gun or, you know, <laughs> walking down the street to talk to your elderly neighbor, you know, it's still a kind of there's still momentum to it. And and, you know, otherwise your story becomes a kind of exercise in navel gazing and nothing happens. And that's just for me, that's just not entertaining. Yeah. Well, uh, all right, so let's get on to jumping out of burning planes with uh, a machine gun strapped to your back or whatever with your Mark Dane thrillers. Um, they are very, or they seem, and this is what this is why I'm going to ask this question, they seem very intensely plotted. You know, they are action thrillers. They're based around plot more than character, not to say there isn't any character, but you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. So do you approach them with a plan? Do you, you know, do you outline at all or do you just fly by the seat of your pants? No, I'm a super plotty guy, definitely. Um, I I've, I've wrote, the, the outlines I've done for the Mark Dane books are the longest outlines I've written for anything in my writing career. Even more so than the franchise stuff? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I would say like the, a lot, two to three times the same length of synopsis, I would say, you know, probably wow. for, for those books. Because there's a lot of moving parts. Partially, I think it's because it's it's my own universe and it's my own characters and it's wholly my own creation and i want to make sure i kind of nail down all of the elements that's part of the reason that i do in-depth storylines but also i think because it's a techno thriller it's got that kind of pace and elements to it it feels like there's a lot of moving parts so it behooves me to make sure that i plot things closely but i don't plot them so closely that there aren't any places to kind of let the story breathe you know because i think if you plot too much it's like you've almost written the book without writing the book you know it's kind of all over by the shouting whereas i try and i'll write a sequence and i'll plot out 
you know, the, the beats of a car chase, but then I'll write another sequence and say, okay, well, these two characters are going to have a conversation and I want to hit these points, but I'm not going to plot out exactly every beat of who says what to who until I get there because I don't know how the, how that moment is going to strike me when I, when I get to it. So I try and strike a, try and strike a happy medium. I, I couldn't ever work without a net though. I have to say that. I mean, people who, who can just come at a thing and have no, no idea where it's going to go. That to me just seems like madness <laughs> because how, you know, how do you, how do you know? How can, how do you know when to start? How do you know when to stop? How do you know where the chapter is going to end? Uh, you know, I, I don't mean to sort of denigrate other people's processes. You know, if that's, that what, that's what works for you, then absolutely you go for it. But for me, that just seems insane. <laughs> I, I have had people like that on this show, and I'm sure I will have more of them. And I agree. I'm like you. I'm a, I'm a plotter, and I find it absolutely crazy to uh, approach something you know, without something complex, especially things like mysteries or thrillers, yeah, without a plot. But, you know, people do. But, again, as you say, if it's working for you, carry on doing it. That's always, mm-hmm. you know, that's my mantra for in all cases is if it works for you, don't, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'd, I'd love to sit down with a, somebody who's like a kind of total pantser and just get them to explain to me how it works because it fascinates me kind of, <laughs> and kind of like in a grotesque, I'm slightly repelled by it, but also I'm kind of like, how do, tell me how that works. How do you do that? I'd love to know. You freaks, you know, how do you work? <laughs> you people are crazy. Um, so what's your, what, where do you start? Do you start with an idea for a threat maybe that somebody like Mark Dane's got a, uh, you know, cancel out, or do you start with, or, or is it an image, or is it all different things? And then where do you go from there? Well, I, 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 I kind of go through the world like a baleen whale, right? Just sifting through <laughs> stuff, interesting stuff. So I'm always, I'm reading sort of like um, about technology and military matters and hardware and, and politics and, you know, global events. And so I'm looking for interesting, weird stuff that just sparks my interest. And what I'll do is, is as, I, as I'm going along through this sort of like scooping process, you know, I end up with like files and files of like, oh, there's an interesting article here on this. And there's a comment, there's a TED talk somewhere I gave, and there's a, you know, uh, a, a, a section of something, I, an article that I like. And I gather all this material together and then just kind of let it percolate for a while. And slowly but surely, the bits that work and the bits that don't will kind of rise to the surface. And then I'll ask myself, okay, well, how can I combine these elements together to make make them into something interesting. And then there's also stuff like ideas I have where I think, hey, wouldn't it be great to do uh, a car chase scene uh, through the middle of Dubai? So that's a great idea. Let's write that down. You know, and that might be something I use. Let's do, wouldn't it be great to see somebody abseiling off the side of Big Ben? What, what have you, you know, ideas for striking visual images and, and things that I just think would be cool. And I build up this sort of massive pile of stuff and then I just kind of shake it through a filter and what kind of comes through and starts to connect together, that begins to form the basis for the narrative that I've, that I've got, so the plot line. And then at the same time, I'm looking at the characters that I have and I'm saying, well, you know, what's going to motivate this person to do these things? What, what are their, the things that they want? What are the, you know, it's the, the, the rules about, you know, the, someone always wants something, someone's always afraid of something, someone's running from something to something. Ask yourself the question about that for each of your characters. And then find the places in the plot where those elements cross connect. And little by little, you build the skeleton and then I just start to flesh it out. And I go through the outline again and again, just gradually adding or subtracting something until it kind of reaches the sort of point of critical mass where I go, okay, now, now I'm ready to start writing this as this feels like a, a coherent shape for a story. So it sounds like at the beginning at least it's a fairly instinctive process as you said letting things just rise to the top and you know letting your your gut feeling guide you as to what's interesting or what might work in a story yeah i mean it's the you know i I go by rule of cool right what sound that sounds like a cool idea that's challenging that's exciting that's terrifying you know what are these elements can i pull together to to make a story that i personally would find compelling and hopefully the readers out there would find compelling as well. Yeah. That's another thing that I'm a big advocate of is writing the thing that you want to exist in the world. Um, Totally. That's a a hundred percent behind the the idea of the Mark Day novels came from that. Well, and it's twofold. I mean, on the one hand, there's this, the idea that, 
you know, you should be excited about something as you're writing it uh, in order for the reader to then be excited. Um, but there's also just the idea that uh, taste is both more specific and more universal than I think a lot of people think, than a lot of people realize. Um, if Because I've found this time and time again, I will write something, and I'm talking here just about sort of scene details, but I will write something that feels to me very specific. You know, it might be based on a personal experience or on uh, an attitude or emotion or something that feels very personal. And I'll, I'll put it out there and I'll get people telling me, like, I know, I know that feeling. I know exactly what's going on there. I've been that person or I've been in that situation or whatever. And I find that really interesting, but also encouraging because it reinforces this idea of like, just, you know, write, not quite for yourself. You've got to bear the audience in mind, but write to your own interests. And if you have sufficient uh enthusiasm for that it will come across and it will speak to people yeah i think there's a authenticity that comes out of that is if you're trying to write for something where you think well i'm going to write the thing that i think will sell not the thing that i think i'm personally excited by i think that shows is mm. it it doesn't quite ring true whereas if you write something that connects with you if it connects with you it will probably connect with a percentage of people out in the real world and hopefully enough people will think your idea is really great and want to buy your stories uh, that's the dream um <laughs> so uh when you do come to outline then how do you go about doing that are you do you sit there with a pen and paper do you have you know do you use a, i had one author on air who uses a spreadsheet for example <laughs> what's your tools generally for me it's just a word doc I start writing down, I have a couple of Word documents, so I have my kind of dump file of cool ideas, and then I have the timeline, and I, and I start structuring the, the, you know, okay, if this, this element happens here, then this character has to go here, and I just literally start plotting out who's going to go where, what sort of character beats and what plot beats have to happen, and I, and I move them around, cutting and pasting, shifting or changing until I find a structure that, that sort of feels coherent. And once I've got that, that's the basis for, for my outline. And do you do that in Word just because you're so familiar with it, I assume? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about trying different ways. I mean, I know a lot of people talk about Scrivener as a really, really great sort of tool for that, doing that kind of stuff. Never tried it myself, so I don't really have an opinion on it. Um, I've done the, you know, the index cards thing, where, which is uh, something that you see a lot in screenwriting, is mm. just kind of putting scenes and elements down on index cards and moving them around. And that always felt to me to be just uh, just no different from basically doing it in the Word document, just having lots of index cards stuck up on the walls instead of looking at a, a page of of um, material. And I've, I've thought about doing the kind of you know the big whiteboard on the wall. I've never done that because I don't have a, I don't have space for a big whiteboard in my office. <laughs> but that's something maybe uh, I'd like to try. I've worked on on those sort of you know drawing out huge sort of. Uh, plot diagrams i've done that a lot when i've worked with um, studios on video games but never when i've I've been working on one of my novels yeah the uh the index card thing is i think it is one of those things that's really useful for certain media like screenplays and comic books where frankly there just isn't as much content and you can see an entire story you know in the space of a a corkboard or whatever Um, you just can't do that with a novel because too much stuff happens. <laughs> and also the the important stuff is in the details quite often. And yeah, it's, uh, I, I totally understand why you, I mean, I type, I do use Scrivener as it happens, but I also type it out um, and have, yeah, a long, I actually write a sort of fairly narrative style outline actually for everything that I do before I start. I mean, I think you need to have, certainly with a novel, you need to be able to hold the entire story in your head at least at the very early stages, because I mean, at least this is my personal experience of it. I think one of the, one of the strengths I have as a writer is I have, I think I have the ability to look at the object. If you imagine holding up like a crystal sphere, that's your, that's your story, right? This beautiful piece of crystal and you hold it up to the light and you turn it and you go, Oh, I can see where it is. Oh, there's a flaw right there. Okay. I need to fix that. And I think I, I'm I'm good at doing that. I'm good at looking at the story and going, I need a car chase here and a dance number there, and that will make it. Where you, here's you know this bit's too slow, that bit's too fast, and I, I think I'm good at doing that. 
And that's been a very useful skill set to, to cultivate. And I think writers who can see the entire scope of a story, you immediately get a sense of, of the pitch and moment of it. And that's very useful to have that at the stage when you're plotting, because hopefully you can fix problems that would become huge, great big gaps in your narrative when you're actually there at the coalface typing out the dialogue and what have you. Yeah. I, do you not leave any gaps like that then? I mean, and this isn't just about scene details, but I mean like plot gaps, because I will, my outlines are fairly comprehensive, but occasionally I will get to a bit where I'm like, I don't actually know how I'm going to solve this, but I kind of feel okay leaving it and I'll figure it out when I get there. No, I try to make sure that the the plot beats are at least something's there. Even if I get to the point in the story when I'm writing, I go, you know what, now that doesn't work. And now that, that felt right at the beginning, but it feels wrong now. And I'll change stuff around. But I, I can't sort of sort of like get to a, a part of my narrative and then go, and then, you know, and then and then things will happen here and then stuff happens and then move on to the next <laughs> I have to have something, even if I change it, just just for my own sort of peace of mind, because otherwise it will nag at me. And so if, if, let's say like I've got I'm missing something in act three and I'm writing act one, I won't really be able to concentrate on act one because I'll be in the back of my head. I'll be thinking, yeah, but you haven't fixed act three yet. So when you come to write, then I assume you've got two word docs open at once side by side with your one with your outline and one with your with your manuscript. Yeah, well, actually, three usually is why I'll, I'll have like so I'll have the actual page that I'm writing stuff on, and then I'll have the outline, and then I have a kind of sort of reference guide. So every time I like, if I introduce a new character or a location or a piece of hardware or you know something something that's going to be important in the story, even if it's just like you know the the name of a street or you know a town or a person or the kind of gun somebody's carrying. I'll jot that into the notes so that if I have to go back and refer to it later, I don't have to go through pages and pages going, well, you know, what kind of gun was he carrying? What color was his jacket? I can just jot that stuff down. So at the end of it, I have a little reference guide for myself. So if you have a character sort of turn up at the beginning of the book and then he comes up back at the end, I can just go straight to the reference guide and go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's, the scar was on his left side of his face, not his right side, just to sort of you know, have all that detail to hand. Yeah, I, I, I do that in Scrivener, actually. I have character sheets. Uh, for well, for all the characters, and as details come to me while I'm writing, I mean, I just did it this morning. This morning, as we we're recording, I was writing something where I had to I decide the name of a company that a character worked for. I hadn't figured it out before. It's not actually plot important, but you know, it needs to be there and it needs to be consistent. Yeah. So yeah, I opened up the character sheet, came up with a name, and there it is. And now I have, as you say, that reference whenever I need to come back to. And it might only be mentioned another half dozen times in the story throughout the entire novel. But now it's there for me to look at. I find that really useful as well. Yeah, especially if you're you're dealing with, say, f- um, foreign names or characters from a language you're not familiar with. You know, if you might you might mm. spell it one way and then spell it a different way, and just those it's those little inconsistencies. And you know, that's the kind of stuff that your line editor really loves you for because usually they're the people who have to catch yeah. every time you make a mistake <laughs> like that. And so just try and you know, make their job a little easier for them. Yeah, one of the nicest compliments I ever got was from a uh copy editor no was it copy editor or proofreader no it was the copy editor who just basically said oh this is such a lovely clean manuscript thank you <laughs> yeah i mean i that's i, I try to aim for that myself I, I don't know if that's from my journalistic i've had people say to me it's because you're a journalist because you're trained to kind of deliver as clean clean copy camera ready copy as you possibly can when it leaves your hands Do you know it could be yeah because i have a i mean not as extensive as you but i have a background in journalism as well um so yeah maybe that is maybe there's something to be said for that well, there's certainly, I mean, there's, there's a set of kind of um, directives, I guess, you have if you, if you want to be a jobbing journalist is deliver clean copy, uh, deadline is king, you know, and don't be precious about edits and that kind of thing. And all of those yeah. are useful transferable skills across to working as a, you know, a commercial mass market writer. Right. In any, no matter what the media as well, no matter what the medium or format. Yeah. So what is your, when you sit down to write, novels then what is your typical writing day like like when do you write and how much do you aim for a word count or do you just do a set uh, number of hours or what so for me I, I set a word count target and it depends it, it varies on what the project is and even you know what franchise or what style i'm writing in some stuff i find easier to write than others so you know i might kind of dial my word count up or down but generally 
Um, I used to do a six-day week. Now I'm trying really hard to actually have a whole weekend off. So I'm trying to do just a five-day week. That was like in the last couple of years, I said, you know, I need to give myself a present for working so hard. It's like take one extra day off a week <laughs> for crying out loud. You know, don't write so much. So I'm a full-time writer. I know a lot of people, uh, I originally used to write sort of pro stuff in the evenings and I'd write my um, journalistic stuff in the mornings. And then before that, I had a day job and I used to write my journalistic stuff uh, in the evenings and then fall asleep at work in meetings afterwards. So now, um, as I'm a, full, a full-time creative writer, what I tend to do is, is I'll get up, sort of park my backside in the chair around about nine o'clock in the morning. I'll do spend an hour or so sort of emailing and, and checking sort of all my paperwork. And then the first job I do is I go back to the previous day's word count and I read back through everything that I wrote the day before. So I'm kind of editing as I go, just trimming and, and, you know, shaping it and just kind of giving it a little bit of a polish. And by the time I get to the end of doing that kind of little mini edit, it sort of primed the pump and kind of got me up to speed. And then I start writing and I'll do the, the keep writing until I hit the, the day's word count. So if I finish early, I quit early, you know, and if I, if I, if I don't finish, I'll work through until I've hit it. Uh, and then, and next day, I just repeat. And so I go through that process, kind of write and edit and write and edit and write and edit. And then when I'm done, well, I say, when I'm about halfway through, if it's a book I'm working on, if I'm halfway through it, I'll stop. I'll go back. I'll compile a document that's the first half of the work. And then I'll read it all again from the beginning and edit it again just to remind myself. Because, you know, when you're writing a book, you could be doing it for sort of three months and you might kind of forget certain things that you've done and certain sort of stuff you put in at the beginning of the book you're halfway through it now you might have lost track of where where you were going with it so i go back to the beginning i do that edit process again and then i write the back end of the book and then when i finish the first draft i compile a, a complete first draft and i edit again from the very beginning and then that's kind of like my draft zero and then once that edit is done that's the first sort of example of it that i would feel con- comfortable giving to like another person to look at and I'll pass that on to my beta readers or my editors and, and then go through the process of, of rewrites from there. That is fascinating. I don't think I've ever spoke to anybody else who has quite that method because you've got elements in there that I do, which is like the, you do a word count no matter how long it takes you. And sometimes that means you're done early. And sometimes that means you're still grinding it out later in the day, but going back, stopping halfway and then going back and rereading and editing that first half before you do the second half that's i've never heard anybody doing that wow i I never used to do it and then when i started uh, it's it's something i've come into in the in the sort of later years as i've kind of matured as a writer i think i'd do it just to sort of remind myself because sometimes i think especially when you're writing a novel that's you know something that's pretty long if you're writing something that's over a hundred thousand words long i think you can get lost lost in your own weeds, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I think it's important to sort of remind yourself, you know, where did I, what was the intention I had when I started this? Where was I going from? Is it still the same? Has it changed? Because, you know, you may find yourself halfway through a book and you might have opened it up saying, okay, well, this character's arc is going to be X, Y, Z. And then you get there and you go, actually, halfway through the book, that doesn't really work. And you find that it it isn't really coming together. And you can go back and tweak it and, and, you know, make it, things come more into line into the direction that you feel the book is going and that's the process of the discovery of the story because i think even if you even if you plot closely you are still discovering narrative and plot and character elements as you go through because it just will it will the story grows in the telling you know so i think you have to go back and tweak things a little bit and that's so that's why i do the the sort of halfway mark rewrite thing I mean, that's absolutely true. And I agree 100% that yes, things will change and you'll find the sometimes, you know, the sort of the truth of the story, what's really lying at the bottom of it in the telling. But I wait until I've reached the end. I'll make notes if I suddenly realize, as you say, like, oh, actually this arc for this character isn't working, it needs to be someone else, then I'll make a note to myself about that. But I won't go back and change it until I've written the entire first rough draft. And for me, that's just about getting to the end of the draft so that A, I don't change my mind again before I, <laughs> before I get there, because that has happened. Uh, but also so that, you know, so that I can see the whole thing uh, and judge it as a whole unit. I'm big on that. But also 
frankly, because I fear that if I did that with the first half, I'd never get past the first half and I'd never actually finish it. Do you know what I mean? I get so right. stuck into the editing process. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you you have to, uh, you know, discipline yourself and say, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do like a kind of colossal tear down rewrite. Yeah, and I think again, that's what helps by having heavily plotted, is I know that when I go back and do that kind of halfway mark rewrite, I am not going to change it in a massive way. It's going to be more like tightening the bolts in the places where it's you know squeaking a little bit. Well, and once you've done that edit you're not then going to need to do that edit on that half of the book again before, as you say, it gets to a stage where you can send it to beta readers. Yeah. And so it means I'm doing, yeah, like half of that final edit job before I get to the final edit. I mean, I have tried writing stuff uh, for an experiment. I worked on a book and I thought I'm not going to do the, my kind of morning edit mini edits. I'll just, just write, just write. And I won't look at anything I've done. And I got about halfway through it and I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it because it just didn't, it just didn't sit right with me. Uh. And I had to stop dead and go, no, you know, what? I, just, I just can't do this. I've, I've got to go back to the <laughs> process that, because that's the process that works for me. And it's the process that I'm comfortable with, you know, right or wrong. Uh, and, and, it, and, as, and as it's worked for me, I don't really see a reason to change it. You know, I think I've just, no, no one ever said to me, this is how you do it. No one ever said, this is the process. I don't think I ever went to a writing course or read like Robert McKee or anything like that and said like, this is, this is the rule. These are the rules. This just to me seemed like the logical way to do it. So this is the James Swallow method, right? And that's what works for James Swallow. But what works for, you know, Anthony Johnston or Stephen King or whoever, you know, is, is the, the, the method is the method, you know, and that's something I often say to, to um, newbie writers when I'm talking to them and they say, well, how do you do it? And I'm like, well, this is my process, but this is my process. Yeah. It's not, yeah. it might not necessarily be your, by all means, give it a go, but it might not be your process. And part of the, the maturity of, of the, 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 the life cycle of being a writer is finding what that process is for you, finding the ideal way, that you can express your gift and your, your skill set and your style through, through a process, a writing process that works for you. And it may only ever work for you. Yeah. Funnily enough, I know exactly that feeling of experimenting with a different style and then getting halfway through and going, no, I just can't do it. Uh, but for me, that was, I tried to write something without an outline uh, many, many years ago. And yeah, got halfway through and I was just like, I can't do it. I was breaking out in cold sweats. I was <laughs> It's just not working for me at all. <laughs> I think at the, at the beginning, when I was, you know, b um, before I was even, when I was just fiddling around with ideas as a kid, you know, as, uh, in, my, in my student years, just playing around with ideas, I did try to write some stories without an outline. And they just kind of would just peter out because I had no idea of how to sort of land it. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you, if you don't have that, you know, if you don't have that ending, I mean, this is, this is the thing I often hear from, again, uh, one of those things that newbie writers will often say is, uh, you know, I started writing a story and I got halfway through it and I didn't really like it. So I stopped. And, and I said, well, you, have you, have you ever finished anything like now? And they got like, they've got like 30 stories they've written, but they're all unfinished. And I feel that maybe if you, if, if you started something and you think, you know, the ending will just come to you magically, well, maybe it won't. That's what you need to plot your outlines for is you need to have an idea of where you're going to finish a story before you start. Yeah. And that, that ability to land, land the narrative, put it back down on the runway, hopefully in one piece, I think this is just so vitally important, at least to me. Well, and to somebody who has written 30 stories and not finished any of them, I think that's the, it's that self-awareness that's the key, isn't it? You know, if you, if you did that once and then the next time you tried it, it was fine and you're able to work like that, then carry on. But yeah, if you're at the stage where you've written multiple or tried writing multiple stories and never finished any of them, maybe you're the sort of person who needs to write from an outline. Absolutely. I mean, again, you, you make a great point there about, it's going back to that, that point I made about the, the maturity that you develop as a writer. Is you have to get yourself into a position where you can step back and look at your process and look at yourself as a writer and go, what's not working? Be cold-eyed and clinical about it and go, what am I doing wrong? And I think that is such an important skill to develop, to be able to criticize yourself in a, in a productive way, not to, you know, not to beat yourself up about what you're not doing well and not to kind of blow your own trumpet about what you're, what you're doing perfectly, is to find the, the ability to look at your stuff in a cold-eyed clinical fashion and say you know how do i make myself a better writer i think it's a very 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 important skill to develop and it's 
it's helped me get better at what I do. Uh, well, and become a, you know, obviously successful and prolific <laughs> writer along the way. So it must be working. Um, do you, I mean, and talking about how prolific you are, like me, you work in a variety of mediums. You're often, as you said, you're always working on at least one big game uh, each year. So how do you pass like your time? Do you work on both games and novels on the same day or do you try to make sure their schedules don't overlap? I, d- I don't like working on two different things on the same day. I like to kind of concentrate my brain on one particular project. So I, I really react very badly to that when people say like, oh, could you work on this in the morning and then do a comp- change gears and work on a completely different thing in the afternoon? And that feels wrong to me. I feel like I need to have like a night's sleep to reset my brain so I can mm. say, oh, to, you know, today I'll work on a comic book story and tomorrow I'll write on a games project. And that's fine. But I need to have that, that sort of break away from things because it feels like I am really, you know, shifting gears, bringing out a completely different tool set. I need to have that kind of little bit of clear water between the two projects. Yeah, I, I can totally understand that. I'm much the same. Occasionally I have to work on more than one thing in a day, uh, you know, if circumstances just demand it. But yeah, I always prefer not to. Yeah, I mean, even if it's like uh, the same format, you know, even if it's like two different novels, but they won't be, you know, the, they won't be for the same franchise or in the same style. And so I, again, I want to have that difference to sort of, uh, so I can reset my brain. So I'm going, okay, now I'm right. I was writing a Star Trek story on this day and, and tomorrow I'm going to write a Doctor Who story. You know, and they might both be science fiction. They might both be times, but they come from completely different places. And I need to have that moment to be able to go, you know, reset. This is what you're writing now. And then pick up in a, pick up, pick up with a sort of fresh eye. Yeah. You don't want to be writing Star Trek in a Doctor Who frame of mind yeah no <laughs> that's probably not, not gonna you know, go down well <laughs> i mean that's a key you know that's a key thing about writing any sort of tie-in franchise is working in anybody else's sandbox is that you have to one of the first things you have to be able to do is you have to emulate the the style uh of that world even you know of course obviously you bring your own skill to it and you bring your own flavor and, and your own vo- voice as a writer but you have to have the you have to understand what that world sounds and tastes and smells like in a not just in a literal way, but in a textural way as well. Yeah. And if you you know, if you confuse that, if you write it in something that well, this doesn't feel like that franchise, and because you're writing for a dedicated fan base, they will definitely tell you if they, if if it doesn't feel like the world it's supposed to be set in. That actually, I was going to ask about your beta process, but that's also like how well how does it work in general? But also, how do you handle that with the franchise stuff, which obviously you know you don't own, you're not in charge of, and I assume you're signing NDAs when you take on this work. I don't, I don't have beta readers for my franchise stuff. Right. So how does it work for the for the stuff that you do? You know, for your own original stuff. Then I mean, I, to be to begin with, actually, it's only in since the I've started doing a lot more of my own stuff that I've started using beta readers because. I just never did because I have I was writing a lot of franchise material and, and like you say that stuff is is NDA'd from to the hell and back so you have to send it off to um, the the production company because you'll have your your license or you, you'll also have like the publisher you, you'll have half a dozen people beta reading it for you anyway more editors than you would normally have in any other kind of project so there are extra eyes on it and that's essentially what you want a beta reader for. With my own stuff, the people who beta read my my work are, are other writers that I know, and we have like a kind of little sort of circle of people. It's like so whenever whenever one of us is doing something, we will pass it around to the other guys in the group, uh, and just get just to get a kind of professional eye on it, to get somebody to look at it who who will be able to analyze it and give you again that kind of that cold eyed, clear eyed sort of distance. To give you the, you know, well, you know, this scene isn't working right, or that's not quite good enough, or this moves too slowly. You know, those are the notes that I look for from from my beta readers. Yeah, it's important. I mean, not all of my beta readers are also writers, but they're all people. Some of them are, uh, but they're all people that I trust to be able to read a story that is essentially unfinished. You know, when you send a beta, it, no matter how uh, how much you may have revised the manuscript, you know that you're going to revise it again. It is essentially unfinished. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you trust that they know how to read that and understand that it's not the finished article and that things are going to change. And I think that is a particular skill in and of itself. Definitely. I mean, I think when, if you, if you're picking somebody to, to be to read for you, you, you it is very, you are, you are showing kind of vulnerability to this person. Oh, yeah. Here's this unfinished piece of work. It's not quite good enough yet. And it's, it's difficult to, to get that stuff out there and to, to be able to expose your material like that when it is in this unfinished raw form. But 
what you need from that beta reader the, is you need advice that you can actually use. You know, you need you need criticism that that has weight and purpose to it that, that comes from a place of knowledge. And that doesn't necessarily have to be from somebody who is a writer, but it has to be somebody who can articulate that criticism in a way that, that you can find something useful to, to fold back into the, the next draft of the book. Yeah. Or whatever it is you're writing. To give you actionable points, as it were. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. A very, uh, very new media speak way of putting it. But <laughs> <laughs> never mind. Um, just as a general question, how do you wind down at the end of the day when you're done? Because you, again, you know, you write a lot. You're writing pretty much every day. What do you do to kind of switch off and, you know, become a uh, household James as opposed to writer James? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I ever do really. Is there's a phrase somebody said once, which really stuck with me. He said that writers um, are always writing. We're just not always writing it down. Oh, I like that. I wish I could remember who said it, but I think that's really true. Is I think once, you know, I might step away from the keyboard, but some, somewhere in the back of my head, there's a, there's part of the writer brain that is just constantly ticking over. And that might be, you know, I hear a snatch of dialogue on the train and I think, oh, that's interesting. And I file it away or see something in the news or I read something in a book somewhere. And, and the writer brain is constantly ticking over, constantly ticking over, just farming that stuff. And every now and then it will just kind of nudge its way to the front and go, here's a cool idea. And you go, oh, wow, where'd that come from? You know, and it's just been that, that process of synthesis has been going on all through the time. So I think on some level I never switch off. And Sometimes I wish I could, you know, when just a couple of <laughs> nights back, actually, I was lying in bed and I thought, oh, this is going to be one of those nights where I'm, I'm, I'm not really very tired and I'm just going to be staring at the ceiling and I'm be thinking about story ideas because they just pop up into my head. And that's why I keep a notebook by the bed. Uh, and that's one of the downsides of it. It's like, I just like to sleep and the brain goes, yeah, but hey, Jim, let's talk about this. And it's like, oh, for crying <laughs> out loud. I just want to, I just want to get a good night's sleep. But in terms of uh, what I do for fun is, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I just, I read. I watch a lot of movies. I, I, you know, I watch a lot of, of like high concept TV. I play video games. I play board games. I travel. Um, I just try to kind of do. I just pick, just do stuff that I find fun. You know, to try. And, and but the thing is, is the it's funny that the intersection between what I do for a living and what I think is fun is is extremely close. There's a lot of overlap. Yeah, I, I have the same yeah. thing. <laughs> um. All right, so uh, let's ask a couple of the regular questions. What do you think you are pretty good at? I think I'm, I think I'm good at plotting, uh, and I'm good at knowing my own strengths and weaknesses. Mm, self-awareness, like? Yeah. Yeah. All right, what do you wish you were better at? Oh. <laughs> I love this question. It That's always a good makes one. people think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always, I always second-guess my character stuff. Is it because I feel like I do plot pretty well? I always feel like I don't do character as well, so I'm always going back and looking at my character stuff again and again and again. I think that's where I work myself the hardest is with my character stuff. Mm. But right, but that's good because it comes from that self awareness again of being able to look at it and go, yeah, you know, maybe this could be improved. Yeah, I, I think it's it, it, um, what I, I live in fear of the fact that my self awareness is bad where that's concerned. Where I look at something and go, well, that looks okay to me. Is it? I'm not quite sure. And that's where your beta reader comes in, right? You know, I was just going to say exactly that. Yeah. All right. Finally, then, what is something that you have read recently where the the writing itself really impressed you, and why? Oh, right now, actually, I'm uh, I'm reading a book. It's it's not out yet. It's called um, Harrier Eight Oh Nine. It's uh, written by a guy called Roland White, who's written a bunch of books about. Um, events from modern day aviation history so it's a military history book and this book is about the the harrier jump jets that were sent out to the falklands war so it's just this kind of um narrative about all these different people all these pilots and all the all the process that went into getting these aircraft out there and and it's all kind of crunchy granular detail it's all about jet planes which is something that i really love and uh but roland's got this amazing ability to take what you would think would be quite dry sort of technical information and make it crack along like an action thriller and all this stuff. And what's great about it is all this stuff is true. And he has just a really, really uh, amazing skill at doing it. And I'm absolutely loving it. I just picked it up at the beginning of the week and I'm already kind of like a third of the way through it, really enjoying reading it. 
And I think that's an amazing skill to be able to do something like that. It is. It's a rare skill as well. Yeah, fantastic. So, James, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me uh, at my website, which is at jswallow.com, or um, I'm on Twitter uh, at jmswallow. All right. And what work of yours would you recommend that listeners check out if they're not familiar with what you've done? Uh, I would love people to to check out uh, Nomad, which is the first book in my Mark Dane series. I'm currently uh, just about to have the fifth book in the series, uh, Rogue. That's going to be coming out very soon, and I'm working on the sixth one. Also, if you if you come along to my website, there is a free downloadable novella called Rough Air, which is a kind of standalone story about the characters from from that world. So if you want to try that out, you can come along and read that for free. But Nomad's pretty much the the jumping on point that I would recommend to people. You're on to book six. Wow. I had no idea that you were pumping them out like that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're banging along pretty well with these. Like I say, Rogue is, is book five. That's the, the next one that's coming out. Um, and we've got high hopes for that one. And then book six is um, I'm just at the stage now where I'm assembling the, um, the outline for that. And I'm going to be working on that towards the end of this year. Fantastic. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. If you enjoyed the show, why not become a Patreon supporter? Patrons get exclusive access to episodes before they're published and all sorts of other goodies. So go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing to make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you'll find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.